thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. On ktalk.co.za On the app On DSTV channel 885 And across the city on 567am Join the conversation This is Cape Talk This is Cape Talk It's 28 minutes to 10 o'clock Every Friday morning round about this time We cross over to the UK And we speak to Dr. Chris Smith the Naked Scientist. He answers your science and natural history related questions. So get them coming in. 0214460567. Drop me a WhatsApp. 0725671567. And a reminder, Dr. Christmas is a is a is a doctor, but he can only answer science and natural history related questions. He cannot give you a diagnosis. Over there, if there's something that is ailing you, we advise you go to your doctor, go to your clinic and get a proper in-person diagnosis. But Dr. Chris Smith, thanks so much for joining us here on air. How are you doing? Morning. I'm in, I'm in really good shape. How about yourself? Very good. It's, it's, it's been a long week and there's a, there's a question that, that's popped in about sleeping. And I want to reflect on that. But first, we have our first caller. So we'll jump straight into John from Weinberg. John, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. Uh, morning, Doctor. Hi, John. Uh, what's the status quo regarding um, sanitizing groceries, the wrapping coming in, and, and what about uh, newspapers and letters dropped in one's letterbox? I presume this is in relation to COVID, right? And the answer is that this is a respiratory infection. And most of the cases we're seeing will be spread via the respiratory route. In other words, people who are symptomatic and even people who are asymptomatic, coughing, breathing out particles, which are droplets of moisture from their airways with virus in them. Now, some of those particles will land on surfaces and they will therefore land on things we touch because one of those surfaces could be your hands, especially if you've had a tissue and blown your nose. But the amount of time the virus remains viable on surfaces is pretty limited in the grand scheme of things. The likely route into the body of catching the infection that way is that you're going to breathe it in, not eat it in. And since you don't really eat the tins that your groceries or tinned products come in, you don't eat your post, you open it and hopefully then wash your hands anyway, then really, whilst that can make a very small contribution, the elephant in the room is the respiratory route of transmission which is why the virus spreads well where there are big crowds of people in poorly ventilated spaces. So really, if you want to make the biggest difference to your chances of picking it up, it is resort to being a hermit, which is not terribly good for your loneliness score or your sociability, but that's one way. But avoiding very crowded places and avoiding very poorly ventilated places because that means there's more likely to be more virus in the air for more time and that means you're more likely to encounter an infectious dose of it. And of course... The whole thing is underpinned by grab a jab. The best weapon we have against this virus 
is a vaccination. And as soon as you can, if you're offered a vaccine, please, as one of our deputy chief medical officers said in the UK, grab it with both hands and definitely offer it even to your mother-in-law because this really makes a big difference. It's it's very, very effective indeed. So, yes, hand washing make, makes a difference. Yes, cleansing surfaces makes a difference. But the real, real big difference comes from vaccines and also from the respiratory route, staying away from big crowded places. Chris, the next question is a personal one, and that I'm going to ask the this person's question after I ask my question. Is that I've discovered that I'm a slow start. I do a preview for the show at about eight fifteen with Refill with Malota, and usually when I get into a studio, I'm still stretching. I'm up at about six in the morning, but at quarter to nine, I'm still stretching. Um, and my colleagues often ask me, "Are you okay?" And I say, "No, I'm still asleep." It is only after the second hour of the show that I get a boost of energy, and I don't know if it's the adrenaline of having the pre-show nerves that anyone in broadcasting has before they go live on air, that only after the second hour of the show, I feel this is now four hours after I've woken up, you know, have a burst of energy for the day. Do we have, we have sleep cycles, but do we also have energy cycles? Oh, yes. And your body is very finely tuned, and not just yours, but as in the human body, our physiology, it's really finely tuned to what we need to be doing at whatever time. So in other words, you have an anticipatory system that turns on the energy when your body expects you to burn a lot of energy. So when we go to bed at night, there is no point while we're trying to sleep in having our metabolism thundering away, burning calories, producing energy that you're not going to use because you are down at your base or metabolic rate because you are recumbent, you're sleeping. But when you get up in the morning, you need to make sure that you're ready to go and leap out of bed full of the joys of spring. And so your metabolism, in tune and, and in response to signals from your body clock, and every cell in your body pretty much is running a clock, which is a slave clock driven by a master clock in your brain, which tells all of the other clocks to sync up around your body, turn on your metabolism. And so your metabolism begins to rev up to make energy available hours before you actually wake up in the morning. But here's the wrinkle. Some people are what we dub night owls. Some people are what we dub larks. There are different so-called chronotypes, chronos from the Greek word clock, There are people in the population who have a particular clock configuration which is genetically driven, which means they are much better and feel much better if they're given a later start to the day. So they are definitely not breakfast show presenters. (laughs) There are people who are larks, they're up with the, you know, sunrise, and they feel much better, much more energised, and they perform much better really early in the day. They definitely are better breakfast show presenters and they would make terrible late night chat show hosts and it's just down to human physiology and the genetic hand that you inherit from your parents that determines which of those chronotypes you are and we know what the genes are and so in theory you could go and get tested Lester and you could find out if you have a particular constellation of genes that mean your body clock tends to favour a slightly later start to the day that means your metabolism And don't forget, we're not just talking about muscle metabolism, we're talking about energy being burned off in your brain, which is your most metabolically hungry organ in your body. Your brain contributes about 2% to your body weight, but it burns off 
about 20% of the oxygen that you use in any one moment. So it's really metabolically hungry. And the metabolism of the brain also massively shifts up when you're about to wake up or in, in anticipation of waking up. And if you have a slightly delayed start to the day metabolically, you will also have a slightly sluggish start to the day behaviorally too. I'm the same. How do I compensate? Massive dose of coffee, Lester. So it's got to be a good one, though. Uh, but that does have the effect that you tend to have to anticipate when you're going to do your radio program and have your coffee at least 40 minutes beforehand. And don't overdo it, because otherwise, if, if what happens to you happens to me, you talk too fast. And, and then it's so frantic and hectic that you can't actually make sense. So, it's, so there's a sweet spot there, and you've got to dial into it. And I'll send that test results to our HR and our programming manager. I absolutely do. I mean, <laughs> one of my friends, Russell Foster, actually discovered part of the system in the back of the eye that sets your body clock. And, uh, I mean, a, fam- a very fabulous scientist. And uh, he was trying to do studies where we could start the school day at a slightly later time for certain age groups because we're all familiar. And I've got two teenagers now. And the difference between a six-year-old and a 16-year-old in terms of when they want to get up in the morning could not be more stark. And any parent listening to this and the same, but they will know exactly what I'm talking about. They don't want to get up in the morning. And so it's not just your genetics that make a difference. Your brain development and hormones and puberty also makes a big difference to this as well. Mm. And Russell tried to set up a project where they would start the school day for certain groups and certain age ranges slightly later because the evidence they had was that kids learn Mm. better later and if you talk to educators they will tell you that some classes especially at the beginning Mm. of the day are much more sluggish than at the beginning of the day for other ages of kids and so it it really does make a difference and i don't think you're Mm. still a teenager i mean maybe one at heart but i don't think behaviorally you are so i suspect in your case (laughs) it is more a chronotype genetic thing and that's your inherent makeup than uh, a hormonal thing but that is also important Mm. Uh, so, so that leads to, to our question from a listener. Is there a difference in sleeping on one's left-hand side or one's right-hand side when it comes to, to health? No. There was one very, I think, pretty lame study, or there was a handful of lame studies that looked at sleeping position and whether you were dreaming very much and remembered your dreams or not. I don't think really I rely on those studies. But in terms of sleeping position... No, there's not really a difference between sleeping on your front, sleeping on one side or sleeping on the other. Really, it comes down to do you sleep with somebody? And if you do, where are they in the bed? Because that makes a difference. And what side of the bed do you sleep on? Uh, It's it's really interesting that as well, because couples tend to have a favoured side of the bed, of course, their side, his Mm -hmm. side, her side or whatever. And you you will find that that some people always favour the right and some people always favour the left. I've done the experiment and tried to swap them around when we go away to hotel rooms and things. And and you get some pretty grumpy looks. It's really interesting, isn't it? There's definitely a sort of (laughs) habitual aspect to this, but I suspect that may also be playing a role. Uh, Psychology and sociology... It's it's it could also be behavioral science and and in certain cultures, um, men would be right. expected to sleep on the side of the bed that's closest to the door. And so, yeah, that's, to, that, there's a various we, reasons for that, mate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Zuki is asking also on sleep, but but ask, please ask this, Doctor Chris, if once chronotype can be changed by habit. For example, can a person 
uh, who is genetically not a morning person, become after decades? Can you become one if you've had to wake up day in and day out to wake up early for work? Well, you can certainly rehearse and practice. And one of the things humans are very good at is making adaptations in order to improve our performance under any circumstances. But you will always be fighting your genetics. And there will be people who say, I've done this for 20 years, I can't do it anymore. You know, I am not a morning person and I'm, I'm much better when I function late at night. But I would find that when I was first a junior doctor and I was having to turn up, I liked medicine much more than surgery because the surgeons always started very early in the morning so they could see all their patients and then get into the operating theatre and get stuck in. Whereas the medics would uh, just start a bit later and then just prowl around their patients all day and then do clinics and things. I didn't like surgery for that reason. So isn't it interesting? I I didn't like surgery. Too many early starts, like medicine, don't Mm -hmm. mind finishing a bit late. We're taking your calls, taking your messages, your voice notes. 021-446-0567. Doc, doc, drop Dr. Chris a WhatsApp. 0725671567. Plenty of messages. I'd like you to call in and ask your questions directly. Uh, Mark asks, Hi, Dr. Chris. Is addiction a an inherited trait. My dad and uncles are are horse racing fanatics and I'm very interested in sports in sports betting especially football but I'm wary that I may become addicted. That's a message from Mark. Hello Mark well the reason that we enjoy things like gambling and betting is the same reason actually we enjoy doing other dangerous things or, or risky things and the same reason actually that you can get addicted to gambling as you get addicted to heroin it hinges on a chemical in the brain called dopamine there's a population of nerve cells in a particular region of the brain that produce the nerve chemical dopamine and when they produce it it produces surges of pleasure and a sensation of reward And the reason it does that is because there are other nerve cells that have on their surfaces receptors. These are chemical docking stations that can detect the presence of the dopamine. So given that knowledge, researchers have gone and asked, are there any differences in the brains of people who become addicted to things? They have a so-called addictive personality and either the dopamine producing nerve cells or the nerve cells that are sensitive to this dopamine reward signal. And there's some evidence that there are people who have particular configurations of dopamine receptors in their brains. Perhaps they have higher levels of them, perhaps their receptors work a bit better, or perhaps they produce a bit more dopamine. And there are also other circuits involving chemicals like acetylcholine, which have been linked to addiction. So there do appear to be some people who do have particular genetic configurations that make them more likely to become addicted to things but that only manifests if obviously they have the opportunity to experience the thing to which they can become addicted so for instance if you had a gene that meant you were more likely to become say alcohol dependent then you would be absolutely fine with that gene if you never touched a drop of alcohol in your life because you didn't know it existed and it's the same with all these things that there will be people who have these genes but never do the thing that they could then become addicted to so it's never manifest There are other people who are exposed to those things. They do have that particular predisposition, and so it does then become a problem for them. So it's quite difficult to disentangle really nature from nurture, but we do think that there is at least a a contribution to this of genetics. Message here on the WhatsApp line. Why can't you walk in a straight line if you close your eyes? 
<laughs> well, have I um, tried that before? I yeah, won't you try know, I'll tell you an interesting story because when I got engaged, and it's actually 20 years this year since I asked my now wife to marry me, so you can guess the answer to the question. But when I did that was almost 20 years ago because I was in Kyoto in Japan and I went to the Kiyomizu Temple in Japan and, I, and I'd read that there are these two stones which are a big long distance apart and if a couple hold hands and walk with their eyes closed between these two stones which are obviously it's a straight line between two points isn't it if they get there and, hit and reach the other stone then they will be lucky in love and I thought this would be perfect for popping the question and and so I said oh shall we try this then and my my girlfriend <laughs> of the time said oh okay and so we started sort of walking things and of course I had one eye open that just a little bit just to make sure I steered us the right way and of course we got to the other end and arrived unerringly at this other rock and I said well that's it then I've I've got to to well got to, got to ask you something then and she said what's that and uh, and that was when I got the answer yes the answer to this is that you do have excellent guidance systems and anyone who is blind will will demonstrate brilliantly that with practice again it's another example of, of a human endeavor and, and practicing you you become really very good at relying on the senses that you do have and our guidance mm. systems because we we know where every part of our body is in three-dimensional space we have signals coming from our muscles signals coming from our joints and tendons you have signals from your skin so you can read all of those signals and integrate them with other signals like the sounds which are coming off the nearby wall blind people do mm. all of this to work out where they are and keep themselves on the straight and narrow we seeing people on the other hand we have one massive dominant sense that we use a third of our brain to decode, and that's what's going into our eyes. So given that everything else uh, is a smaller contribution and requires more thought and effort, it's much easier to rely on your eyes because that's what you become very practised at doing. It's a bit like you go in your car and you've got a GPS. Well, you don't have to learn the way if you've got a GPS because you just dial in where you want to go and blindly follow what the GPS tells you, even if it's a longer route, you just follow it anyway you've got an easier mechanism for finding your way from A to B without much, much thought. And it's the same with our visual system. If you do shut your eyes, because you are robbing yourself of the system that you are most familiar with using most of the time and you haven't honed your other senses quite so well, you do go off target a bit. But the human body's still pretty good at doing this kind of thing. You just have to concentrate a bit more. Seems as if sleep and addiction dominating our questions today get your questions coming in for the next 10 minutes 0214460567 drop me a whatsapp 0725671567 let's have a listen do a voice note i was just wanting to comment on the caller who's addicted to gambling or thinking of his parents and his grandparents gambling is that i think there's a childhood dispossession that your parents did something and therefore you associated that with a good feeling and therefore you require that good feeling to satisfy your do dopamine so I think sometimes it can be hereditary but most times it's more passed down through childhood adaptation and acknowledging what makes your parents happy and you and trying to instill that happiness in yourself because you understood what that happiness felt like. Justin from Weinberg. 
Thanks so much. Your thoughts on that, Chris? I, I think Justin makes a very good point, but it's it's quite hard to reconcile that if you took the example of, say, heroin addiction or cocaine addiction or even smoking addiction or alcohol addiction. I think that is right in the sense that it does lead you down the slippery slope. It's more likely to lead to the establishment or the behaviour which in the first instance gets you into the thing but we know there are very specific neurological changes which uh, go along with being addicted to something and we all know what those sorts of things are. It is the fact that it robs you of your ability to to carry out your life normally. It tends to lead to people behaving in ways that you wouldn't normally behave and people have enormous amounts of distress when they're prevented from doing the thing that they normally do that they're addicted to and there can be physical consequences for them if they don't do it. So I, I think both aspects of this are important certainly the environment and that's what i meant when i said nurture the environment of getting people into something in the first place a, a sort of mental receptivity to that particular behavior but then underneath that is the neurological situation that enables it to be sustained and consolidated and some people probably do that more efficiently than others which is why they're more likely to get hooked on a behavior and and, and less empowered to change whatever they feel is going wrong Relating to to addiction, maybe, uh, this person asks, might be a sensitive question for on-air, but some people say that porn has a negative impact. Others say that it has a negative impact on the mind and heart. What's the science behind the danger of porn? It's making a statement that there is a danger there already, but let's look at the issues on 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 human psychology and maybe even... Uh, impact on, on behavior. Chris, is there, is there any science behind um, issues around porn research that has been done? People are looking at this, uh, yes, because obviously what has really transformed in the last 20 years is access, because with the internet, if you ask people who run the internet backbone that funnels all the traffic around the world, what fraction of your content is porn, you will find that a very significant, like not single figures of percent, but tens of percent of internet traffic is pornography. So in other words, there's a massive demand for it. But where previously people might not have been able to access that kind of material, they now can in much greater amounts and for longer and whenever they want and this means that there might be some element of super serving for some people so where previously they might have indulged in i don't know a magazine or perhaps a video they had one magazine and one video and one opportunity to watch it or read it and occasionally had a look at it now people are delving into porn much more often because it is literally there and available so there is an availability issue there's also the issue of what is shown in some of these things because the thing about the internet in the same way that twitter will introduce you and facebook and all these other social media platforms to wild and wacky people who think that uh, the 5g network caused coronavirus which is absolute rubbish but it, it will go and find people who agree with you that that was the case porn will contain things in there which are very much off the end of the normal distribution of normality. Let's put it like that. There will be very weird and wayward behaviours, behaviours towards each other, behaviours towards animals even. And as a result of that, it can normalise that sort of behaviour and lead people to think 
that, oh, they're doing it, so it must be normal, so that's what we should do. And it can lead to a distortion in people's perception of what is normal. This can include perception of what is normal for your body, your body shape, your partner's body shape, the way your body should work, how big bits of it should be. And this, in turn, can lead to people having mental problems because they then think, well, I don't look like that and they all look like that, so I must be the weird one. And as a result of that, people then end up with with performance anxieties and that kind of thing because they don't feel they can meet the expectations of of, of their expectations of what normal now is. Mm. And at the same time, it's also eroding people's um, enjoyment of each other because if rather than having your partner to spend time with, you are spending time with a computer screen, you're not actually indulging in quality time that has other benefits that you won't get from your computer screen, such as that bonding experience, the conversations that you have, and the love for each other. So um, I think the bottom line is that this is not inherently a bad thing, if, if you, you know porn and that kind of thing, in measured doses for some people if it's part of a healthy lifestyle. But when it becomes a non-healthy lifestyle where it's dominating your time, it's affecting your relationship. And that's the question to ask. Is it affecting the way that you behave? Are you making changes to your lifestyle and your relationship to accommodate this? And if you are, that's probably a sign that it's time to maybe back off and don't do that and change your behaviour because it may be harming your um, ability really to to enjoy your life and enjoy your sex life. Something the question that something that that just informs me now. Dopamine is used with Parkinson's patients. Does this mean that these patients lose the capabilities of enjoyment as the disease progresses, especially if their dopamine medication is not correct? Asks this person. Uh, that person asks a very perceptive question, and the answer is that the addiction circuits are slightly removed from the movement facilitating circuits. Dopamine being robbed from the brains of Parkinson's patients chiefly manifests, at least in the early stages of the disease, as a movement disorder, with people suffering the inability from time to time to initiate movement. But other things like mental illnesses, which are treated with dopamine-blocking drugs rather than dopamine-facilitatory drugs like Parkinson's disease, they also may find that they Mm. lose the ability to enjoy things. But chiefly, Mm. Parkinson's is a disorder of movement, at least in the first Mm. initial stages of the disorder. Uh, Chris, our final question for the morning, and I I, I really enjoy this one. I'm a person who, if I could find myself pretty easily around a new city i I look for uh for either man-made or geographical markers i kind of know where north west south and east is so put me in a new city i could i could probably give my give myself a lay of of the land because i'm using these marks but this person says it's a statement which i want to turn into a question it sucks that google maps is weakening our internal gps is gps computerized systems affecting how we perceive and we gauge and we measure landmarks around us instead of using our own maybe internal compasses uh, relying too much on gps systems whatever we do we become better at the more you practice doing something the better you get at it so if you detune yourself you will therefore decondition a particular performance. So if you and your life depends on finding your way around, your job depends on getting from A to B quickly and efficiently, you'll become very good at doing that. The Maguire study looking at taxi drivers in London showed that they increased the size of their hippocampus, which is your navigational part of your brain, very significantly when they learned all the streets of London. So it's a question of if you if you exercise that brain muscle, it will get bigger. Similarly, if you remove that 
aspect from your behaviour, then your brain doesn't actually maintain something it doesn't need. It's a question of use it or lose it. So you will shrink that part of your brain and as a result you would potentially lose your navigational ability and knowledge until you decided to bulk it up again because you're relying on a computer to do the thinking for you. And it's it's true of any aspect of behaviour. So, so you could actually grow your brain by deciding to take a walk, getting lost and trying to figure your way back. It actually helps your brain develop. I would say that learning learning a geography, learning a map and having to navigate through an environment is using particular mm. circuits in the brain and the more you use them, the more developed they're going to be. Dr. Chris Smith, that's all we have time for. I, I won't be here for the next two weeks, but I'll see you on the other side of, of December. I hope you have a good weekend. I will miss you. <laughs> Cheers, Chris. See you soon. Bye-bye, Lester. On cavetalk.co.za On the app On DSTV channel 885 And across the city on 567am Join the conversation This is Cape Talk Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.